Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, all right, everybody, and welcome, and as Rob would say, a pleasant good afternoon, good evening to everybody, and welcome to the Water Zone Radio Show program. I'm your solo host tonight, Chris Davy, because Rob is not with us. He's out enjoying a little time away and not ready to reveal exactly what he's doing, but let's say this, he's going to have to get his land legs back upon his return, so we wish him well. I hope he's having a great time uh, out there on the seven seas. All right. Today, July 27th, 2023, we do have our usual weekly guest, the impeccable Chris Austin from Maven's Notebook. So we're going to bring her on because there's no one that uh, that would like to banter with more than make fun of Rob, but he's not here. So I'm going to ask Chris to join us right now. Chris, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great up here in the North State. It's just 95 degrees, folks. We're we're pretty happy about that. Uh, um, you know, sorry for all of you folks in the center of the country having to endure this incredible heat, uh, but uh, not so bad up here for us today. Right down here, Chris, in Southern California, where I'm at, I just, uh, you know, just looked out at the thermometer, which is outdoors, and it is 105.5. Sounds like an FM radio station, but hey, it's the temperature, um, and it's and it's a little bit humid because we're starting to see some of that Arizona monsoonal moisture starting to uh, drift a little west. So, which is typical in, in August. So maybe it's getting started a little bit earlier. But generally, in August, we get that that big four corners high, right? That's over you know Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, Nevada, and it's starts to drift a little bit west and so we get some of that monsoonal moisture drift over so what it does when it's hot like this is it just raises the humidity and makes it even more sticky oh yeah plus you know you're gonna get the um uh sometimes you get thunderstorms too uh that blow through especially in the you know southern part of the desert so you know yeah monsoon this is uh the monsoon is important part of arizona's water supply and the southwest water supply is the storms that come in but yes oh i do remember that oppressive humidity so yeah some um some really uh dramatic uh weather we're having these days yeah and how about those guys and that you mentioned the guys in the midwest but just saw just you know touching on this a bit in florida the ocean temperatures off south florida incredible i mean triple digit ocean surface temperatures. i right? know uh-huh. that's 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 that is that is and you know unfortunately uh we're going to uh see what the impacts are going to be from this kind of heat um the corals off of florida are are dead or bleached uh, so that's pretty much dead in my understanding of corals. Um, and what this is going to do for fishery stocks, I mean, fish are, you know, they have a limit to how much heat they can take. And so these hot ocean temperatures are are very concerning. 
Um, so is the hot temperatures in the Midwest and across the country. Um, and we just can't, uh, I mean, we're just going to have to see what the impacts from all of this are. But certainly crops out in the field are, are taking up more water. Um, and some, it, may be, it may be detrimental to some crops that are out there in this heat. So, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, the one thing that we experience here in California is that our models that we use for estimating uh, stream flow, like, you know, there's a snowpack in the mountain right. that's so deep, how much water is going to come, you know, flow into the streams and into the reservoirs. And our models that we use for that uh, to determine that were not uh, able at all to predict the effect of the increase in temperatures. Right. Um, you know, it meant that the increase in temperatures that the models did not get was that um, it, the environment just sucked up so much more of the water. Um, and so part of the problem, I think, now is that everybody is, you know, I, I think scientifically we're now learning what the increase in temperature is going to mean uh, to our environment, to our landscape, to our crops and everything. And unfortunately, I think it's looking like um, temperature is one factor that's been underestimated in these models. So, um, you know, this is this is not good news, I'm afraid. Okay. Not good news, you know. Yeah, I agree. So, you know, a couple of articles that, that both, both you and I have shared, have seen them before, right, about the increasing temperature and, and everything that's been attributed to global climate change, one of them being... Uh, the moisture holding capacity for the atmosphere, just like we have in soil, right? Everybody, you know, in the water business in, air, in, in irrigation has heard of uh, soil moisture holding capacity, but the same science applies to, to the atmosphere. And of course, warmer air can support a greater, a higher level of humidity. Um, and so, you know, looking at all that, you can just, you know, put two and two together and figure that means more storms more bad storms, more nasty weather, more hurricanes, more tornadoes, more everything else that, that's not good. Uh, uh, yeah, I think what we are seeing is the general amping up of all of the, the weather cycle, the weather and water cycle. The, the, you know, wets are getting wetter and the dries are getting drier. You know, I think this is what, what we're facing the future uh, with some very extreme weather scenarios, things that we hadn't really contemplated before. So you know, uh, buckle your seat belts, folks. We'll see. We'll see where we're going with this. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So weather aside for a second, Chris, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the notebook today, um, especially looking uh, at the at the uh, daily post you had on there i'm trying to find it right here because i just i just spun my uh ipad <laughs> so i can't see it anymore but i'm i'm going to talk about an article that was uh which related to sgma right the the, the groundwater sustainable groundwater management act um and uh an article that was written about some of the uh overdrafted water basins that are oh. out there and it just seems, uh, yeah, it just seems the juxtaposition after we've had such a wet winter and huge snowpack that's still melting, right, and still filled the rivers and stuff. So kind of like to get your insight on that one. 
Well, yeah, the you know, <laughs> droughts and surface water, you know, comes and goes is very responsive to the weather at the time. Um, the groundwater basins take much longer to recover, and the groundwater basins are, you know, we've been overdrafting groundwater basins for decades, especially in the Central Valley. So, um, you know, we're, groundwater is the one impact of drought, you know, because when you don't have surface water, farmers generally go to, to groundwater. So, um, you know, it's, so it's going to, you know, it's going to be a while before we get those groundwater basins back. We had a really uh, nice wet winter. And a lot of water went into uh, went into the aquifers. I think there was a lot of focus on just trying to get water into the ground, however it could happen. Um, and we've seen a lot of really interesting uh, projects go down. And uh, and and one of the things that they that they did is they found that um, where you put the recharge basins makes a big difference. Like if you have a a disadvantaged community, one of these very small farm worker towns with, you know, uh, water quality issues as well as water supply issues. Domestic wells are not as deep as generally as the agricultural wells, so they're generally the first to go dry. And so we have these small farm worker communities served by these little domestic wells, and they have contamination problems. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, if the if the well if the water table drops below the level that the well can reach, then uh, then the, you know they lose their water. But they that they found that uh, some of these GSA's groundwater agencies have gone out and they've located uh, recharge basins upstream of these disadvantaged communities. Um, so they you know find a place to to create essentially a big hole that can sink water into the earth. And that keeps the water table up by the community uh, so that their wells don't go dry. And it also um, can improve water quality because you can kind of push the, the contaminants away a little bit. So um, we've seen a lot of those projects going on. So, you know, that's been good. A lot of farm fields were used for groundwater recharge and and I think that there are a lot of places where these recharge basins are still filling them up. They're still sinking them in. And when we get to the end of this year, somebody, I'm sure, will come out with a report and will tell us how much water is in, was in, you know, for, but it's still going in now because it's still melting. But, you know, the grand total should be in by the fall. And it'll be interesting to see Um the Department of Water Resources puts out a uh, every six months a groundwater level, uh, you know, of monitoring wells throughout the state. And I would expect that we will see a lot of um, good recovery in groundwater levels uh, this year. But we still have a long ways to go uh, to fill up those aquifers. We're, you know, especially in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, we're talking decades of groundwater over pumping and it's going to take a lot more than just one nice wet year to change that yeah agreed we were talking a couple of weeks ago maybe three weeks ago chris about tulare lake right um yes you know, yes really a natural groundwater replenishment 
right? And then, and though, you know, even though it's a shallow lake, you know, five, six feet or so, it's huge. And they're saying it's going to be around for at least a, a year or two, maybe even more, because that's how long it's going to take to sink that, uh, that well, what, what water doesn't evaporate. But uh, part, I don't know yeah, how part well of the position to recharge. It's, it actually is not. The reason why it, it's staying around so long is that there is a very large um, clay called the Corcoran clay, a very a big clay pan that's underneath uh, that area of the valley. So that's part of the reason why the lake is hanging around is because it, it isn't sinking in because it doesn't, you know, the clay prevents it, the water from sinking down into the aquifer. Um, so that's the challenge of Tulare Lake is, you know, is getting that water off of that land. Um, it's, it's, uh, water full of all kinds of stuff, you know, um, you know, it's, when you flood farmland, uh, you know, you're flooding, uh, farming operations, their equipment, their chemicals and whatever stuff that they may have on site. Uh, you, you have dairies, you have manure piles, you have, I mean, that dairies had a, a hard time this year. They had to get all the, they moved the cows out because, you know, the dairies were flooding. But so there's a lot of like icky stuff in that water. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's going to be a bit of a challenge and, and, uh, you know, now they have, uh, they're worried about mosquitoes and what have you. Um, it's not a pleasant time to be living in the Central Valley, I think. <laughs> I hate to say yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, a tough time for sure. But, you know, before let's, you know, before we bounce off the, the groundwater issue, right, I'm going to just kind of touch a little bit for the listeners on the fact that <clears throat> other than recharge, groundwater recharge, which is really, really important, you know, there's a lot of entities around, especially one that's pretty famous here in Southern California um, that's working on, you know, essentially water uh, replenishment, right? The, the Water Replenishment District. Oh, yes. Here uh-huh. in Southern California does a ton of work, you know, just, just in ways and learning how better to um, to use that, the, the water out, the groundwater resources that we have when, the, not just when the surface water uh reservoirs start to dry up and start to get us into some issues but but uh, even in wet years like uh, like this our friends over at um, aquapod which is a you know another uh podcast and in the water industry had a had a great podcast just the other day so if listeners you can go check that out it's at aquapod um it's a it's a great one but there's a lot of effort that goes on in managing those groundwater resources right chris Yes, and actually, Southern California is very um, uh, has been very proactive on groundwater management, and you know, as a sign of that, none of the groundwater basins in Southern California were considered to be critically overdrafted. Uh, you know, the post World War II boom led to a lot of people moving into Southern California and they started depleting the groundwater basins and they had a lot of problems with land subsidence and seawater intrusion from the wells that were close to the, you know, close to the coast. So they've really been very active uh, since that point in, you know, 
groundwater recharge and you know here's the water replenishment district that's in charge of doing exactly that um so you know that's just one of the and i think actually the what it's the water replenishment district that maintains the salt water intrusion barriers so they recycle water and sink it into the ground close to the coast to keep the salt water from the sea out and right. the fresh water inland it's you know, and and they've been doing this since you know post World War Two. So yes, um, you know it's a, a yeah. And, and I got to hand it to the folks that manage water in Southern California. You know, the, especially the Metropolitan Water District and others too. When you're in charge of delivering water to a population that size, I mean it. It really is quite a task, um, and. You know, there are things that they do in Southern California that are, you know, that they've been doing that are really been um, important and critical and very innovative for their time. So, good place. Yeah, exactly. I exactly couldn't agree with you more. Got to give it to those guys. They do, you know, they do a great <clears throat> job and and they do maintain the saltwater intrusion and all and and all that stuff while servicing what twenty twenty five million. Yeah, right. Customer to uh, to do that, so so it's it's got to be a big task. But you know, they manage not only the the wells for extraction and treating of groundwater, but also all the the smaller wells that are there just for monitoring. Right? I mean, yeah, um, yeah. In, in Southern California alone, I mean, you 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 can't go more than you know like a five square square mile path without finding a groundwater monitoring well, and so much technology in the last. 20 years or so, right, where before, you know, somebody would have to go out uh, once a day, right, and get a reading, and so you get one data point every day, but, you know, now it's all automated, and they can get data points every five minutes if they want, right, so. Yeah, yeah, big data. We, we, We refer to that as big data, and, you know, that's one of the things, that's one of the big benefits of, you know, all this, uh, in increase in monitoring technology is that you can have now these continuous sensors and you can bring them up online and everything. The The biggest problem I think that we have now is that we have a lot of really big data sets, like huge, um, and we need them to be interpreted. Uh, you need a data scientist now to go in there and tell you what all these numbers mean. Um, and that's a, kind of a new expense. I think that uh, we've been working towards that here in California a little bit, especially now that we have open data and uh, and we have open water data. So you, there's actually a website you can go on where you would be able to look at um, actual data for stream flow in a particular river, say, for the last however, pick, pick how many years you want. Um, you know, these are kind of things that scientists might need for their experiments and, and maybe even the general public wants. So, um, yeah, so uh, it's, it, you know, this open data, but a big data means, you know, needs to be interpreted, which has uh, also emerged a whole new field in as a data scientist. And uh, those people are actually quite sought after, is my understanding. Agree. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, there's a there's so many opportunities. We had uh, a couple of months ago, Chris. Remember, we were talking about how um, how our industry, the water industry, 
has really taken a shine to, um, you know, recruiting young people, right, into the, uh, uh, into the business. And I know we've been working at it um, at the company that uh, I work at as well. So it's, it's encouraging for our industry, I think. Don't you agree? I do. I do. And, you know, we, we, we refer to this sometimes as the silver tsunami. Uh, we yeah. have a lot of people in uh, our water distribution, wastewater treatment, um, and, and in water agencies themselves, technicians and stuff, then they're, they're retiring and there's a big need for people to do this work. And, you know, there you can go now to the community college and you can go through a, a certificate program or a two-year program and, you know, you could be qualified to fill in, uh, on you know, to take one of these positions. And the best thing is it's, that we're talking it's a solid position. If you go and you work at a sewage treatment plant, the city is never going to say, you know, I think we're only going to process a billion gallons of sewage this year. So we can scale back and we can get rid of some. I mean, no, you don't get to do that as a city. So right. it's a very solid job. You know, you get in there um, you're, and you get paid well, uh, lots of benefits and, you know, a good solid job. Uh, so if there's anyone out there that's wondering what to do with a career, then, I, you know, you should take a look at uh, the water industry. Veterans, too. They're, they're actively recruiting veterans. So. Yeah, I see uh, we saw a lot of trade and technical schools also taking up this kind of curriculum, too. So, um, you know, and, and you, you've, been on, you've been on our discussions about, uh, about uh, our support for trade and technical schools, especially on Rob's side. He's a very big supporter of that. So, so good for us. Um, yeah, Absolutely. Chris, I know, I know we're getting down to the bottom of the hour here, but, man, I don't want to let this topic go really seriously. Uh-oh. Because, <laughs> and I don't, know if you, I don't know if you know what, I'm not setting you up, but listen, I saw that article about road tires, right, and uh, on Maven's notebook. Um, I don't, you know, I just think about this, you know, millions and millions of cars on the road, and, and every 40, 50, 60,000 miles, you've got to put new tread or put new tires on because it's, you know, the tread gets eaten up. So all of those cars, all of those tires, all of that tread, what happens to the rubber? Yeah, well, apparently it, it shreds up into little pieces and, and goes into our waterways. Uh, this is uh, uh, just a, another uh, big pollution problem that's so small we don't see it, but it's definitely out there. And they found that one chemical in particular is made up of this part of these tires is uh, is very toxic to salmon. It's uh, 6-PPD, I think it's called. So the, you know, now I'll have to say, you know, I don't know, some people may think it's greenwashing, but uh, the U.S. Tire Manufacturing Association has really um, stepped up to the plate, I think, uh, ever since this issue came up and they've been trying to figure out, you know, how to d- address this. So they're now leading a, um, a consortium to figure out what they can use instead of this particular substance that is so toxic for salmon um, and, and other fish in the rivers, too. So, you know, I think this is, uh, I think it's a good sign. It's nice to see uh, someone stepping up to the plate to try and do something about this. Um, 
I agree. You know, it's got to be, you know, more and more cars, more and more tires. Um, and then this stuff just kind of sits around on the roadside until it rains. And then it goes into the stormwater drain, the gutters, stormwater drain. And it ends up somewhere, right? And that's generally in our it, it, Everything our goes somewhere. Everything goes somewhere, folks. <laughs> I like it. Everything goes somewhere. All right, Chris. Well, uh, right here, smack dab at the bottom of the hour. So um, we're going to go to a commercial break in just a bit. But just uh, for our listeners, uh, hang around, if you will. And Chris, uh, thanks so much for being on uh, today and every week as you are for our listeners. Please go to mavensnotebook.com. Check it out. It's just a super resource to go to get all your news, California water news, and uh, a broader uh, broader regional news in, about our industry. Um, take it out. Uh, become a sponsor. Check it out. Become a supporter. It's a great resource. Chris, I wish you a great rest of the week. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night, Chris. Thanks, for, thanks, for, thanks again for this week. All right, listeners, we're going to go to a commercial break. Stay with us, if you will. we got a great guest on the second half of the Water Zone this week, and uh, I'll bring him on in just a couple of minutes. We'll see you then. KCAA Loma Linda. The legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623 623- Five nine four eight six eight nine. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day, so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control, and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete, streamlined system that meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. This 
is KCAA. Well, all right, listeners, uh, thank you for sticking with us, guys. I appreciate it very much. Welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone Radio Show. I'm your host, Chris Davies. For those of you who are tuning in late, uh, Rob Starr's not with us this week. He's out on a little R&R. We wish him well for that. But um, we do have a great guest coming up in just uh, one minute here. But before we do that, just want to do a little PR for our friends over at the Irrigation Association. Uh, July is Smart Irrigation Month, as many of uh, as many of you know. And uh, for our show today on July 27th, it'll be the last show we'll do in July. So, um, as Smart Irrigation uh, Month comes to an end here, just want to remind our listeners on behalf of the Irrigation uh, Association that July really is also the peak month for outdoor water use, and it's a very good time for you to make sure you're using your irrigation efficiently and. You have a rain shut-off device. It's very expensive uh, uh, to get, and it uh, you know adds to your sprinkler system pretty easily, and it prevents uh, irrigation uh, from running during the rain. And you can also improve your efficiency um, in watering by watering at the coolest time of day and not when it's hot and not when it's windy. Uh, uh, more than a third of the water can be lost to evaporation. Many of us are aware of that. So. Listen, for a bunch more information, uh, you can go to the IA's website, and it's irrigation.org slash SWAT for smart water application technologies. You can learn a whole bunch there, just a ton of information. So uh, do that if you can. All right, now it's time to bring on our second guest. We're very happy to have him today. His name is Charles Hillier, and he is... uh, He's the guy that runs CIT at Fresno State. He's also, uh, I think his official title is Director of the Center for Irrigation uh, Technology. And he's up in Fresno. He's got over 20 years' experience developing software systems and tools for agriculture. And about 13 or so of those years were focused pretty much on uh, irrigation management and specifically deficit irrigation. Uh, Charles is also an active member of the American Society of Irrigation, uh, sorry, Agricultural and Biological Engineers. We all know them as the ASABE. He's also a member of the Irrigation Association, uh, the Irrigation Innovation Consortium, or the IIC. And uh, he worked on, he's worked on several international standards developments that affect our industry these days, and he's shared uh, share roles on many of those. And We'll ask him about all that stuff. But let, right now, let me let me welcome Charles to the show. How you doing, Charles? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm splendid, man. Well, I, I listen. I I appreciate you coming on the show and spending some some time with us. We've got uh, I monitored the chat basin, uh, the chat box rather for this as we come on the air, and I've already got some hands up. So I've got some questions from our from our listeners um, already. But let's start off by doing the typical thing we do and and letting our listeners get to know you a little bit. So kind of if you would, you know, how did you, how did you get started in this industry? What drew, what drew you to it? Was it a coincidence? Was it happenstance? Did you actually have a plan since you were three years old to, to become in this industry? What's the story? Well, it's a, a little bit of a story. Um, I was working on my Ph.D. at Oregon State doing agroecological simulation. And I uh, needed about a year more of funding. I'd been doing a lot of software development at that point. 
And there was another professor there, Marshall English, who needed somebody with programming experience to work on an irrigation project. And by the end of the year, I had pretty much completely changed my research focus to irrigation and more or less started over on a, another PhD. And I've been doing irrigation stuff ever since then. How long, how long, when did you go to CIT? Was that, uh, was that midway through? No, I, I started at uh, CIT in October of 2019. Um, so I was at Oregon State for a long time and then Texas okay. for a few years. Okay, great. I answered a couple of questions from uh, from our guys. You've already, you've obviously got some fans here with their um, with their hands up. So, uh, you know, now you, now that you're at CIT, why don't you give us kind of like the thirty thousand foot view of uh, of what happens at CID? What's your role there? Okay. Well, my current typical role day, is um, a typical day. Oh well, there's there's very few typical days here. We're always <laughs> doing something new and exciting. <laughs> Uh, my current position is the interim associate vice president for the California Water Institute. Um, but at CIT, which is where I, uh, I'm still the acting director of CIT, we are a research and testing laboratory. So we have uh, basically three um, plus one, if you will, roles here. One is uh, research. Uh, we have some research scientists here on staff. And then we also do uh, what's called post-award administration for the some faculty in the plant science department and the industrial technology department. Um, we have some resources on the Fresno State Farm that let us do that research. Um, and then we have a lot of administrative staff here in the office. So that's uh, role number one. Role number two, which is what people are probably most familiar with, is our testing laboratory. Uh, that was what CIT was originally created for. Um, it was, uh, the genesis was from a professor who was here named Winston Strong, who saw a need for testing sprinklers. And about 43 years ago, the Center for Irrigation Technology was founded um, to do that kind of industry-focused um, ag water technology testing. Um, so we have an ISO 17025 certified testing laboratory. Uh, we yep. like to say that we can test anything that gets wet in the irrigation system, which is mostly true, and uh, we can do sprinkler tests, drip tests, valve tests, pump tests, um, all sorts of good stuff that tell you about the performance of various components in the irrigation system. Uh, yep. The third got, function... Oh. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're, you're good. Well, the other function uh, that we have is uh, education. Uh, we have a couple of educational events every year, and we have a long-running education program called APES, the uh, Advanced Pump Efficiency Program. Um, that's a pump testing and education program that's been uh, really successful in educating growers, so it's grower-focused education, um, about pumping efficiency, and it's expanded over the years to include pretty much all aspects of irrigation. Yeah, it is a, it's a broad-reaching facility. Those of us who have been in the industry for a long time, Charles, has certainly go back a long way with uh, with CIT back in the back in the days with uh, Dave Zoldowski. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, way back then, I've been I've been to CIT several times. I was there most recently, working with um, KME on uh, doing some testing uh, for us. 
And then most recently, mm-hmm. just just earlier earlier this year, we had Sergeant Green on the on our show. I don't know if you, if you knew that. I do actually. Yeah. So that was the so you know we I go back a long ways being a uh, you know forty plus year veteran in uh, uh, in this in in this industry. But um, listen, I want to give you a chance to talk about the California Water Institute too because you mentioned that a little earlier. I don't I don't want to gloss over that before we get some other subjects. So. So tell us what uh, tell us a bit about the CWI. Sure. So CWI has been around quite a few years, um, and it was a, basically a focused on water issues um, and research relevant globally. Really, um, about a year and a half ago, we were directed by the university to do some reorganizing um, and bring the four water centers at Fresno State sort of under the same umbrella. There are three other centers here at Fresno State that do water stuff um, besides CIT, one of them obviously being CWI. Uh, The other two are the WET Center, the Water Energy and Technology Center, which is a business incubator. And then the third is a program that's now called CSU Water that spans all of the CSU campuses. Um, But it's a water-focused, what's called an affinity group that, that... tries to build research teams and collaborations across the CSU system to focus on water-related research. So the reorganization that we did was to basically bring these four centers together under the banner of the California Water Institute. So all of the folks that were in CWI are now in in the research and education division, and we have basically what we're trying to make as a cohesive uh, front door, if you will, to all things water at present day. Awesome. So, with with all of that resources uh, that you work with, I mean, and, and some insight into that, what what are you seeing? What what are some of the things right now that are really excite you? That really that you're interested in? That you see that uh, that have a future? Well, the the thing that's most exciting to me right now is actually what your previous guest was talking about at the end of the segment. It's about data. Um, there's yeah, mountains data. and mountains of data that are available to growers and managers and administrators. Um, but what you know, what to do with it all? Uh, there are a lot of really exciting opportunities, um, both for academics and for industry, to do exciting new things with these data. Uh, for a long time, there, you know, academia would produce what we call decision support systems, um, and they basically help you think through a decision using modeling and simulation. That's useful if you have a lot of time to model over the data and think about it, but these big data packages that are coming out give us an opportunity to build decision systems rather than decision support systems. And I'm starting to see that over the past few years emerge in industry where uh, equipment manufacturers are now offering software services that will give growers irrigation recommendations, Uh, not just showing them the data, but actually saying you should irrigate tomorrow or Wednesday and you should apply this many inches or this many millimeters. So they really are moving from decision support systems to decision systems. Um, And that creates an opportunity to make it a lot easier to do good management because it takes management and turns it into something that you do and takes it from something you used to do and into something you can buy. Um, It makes doing 
robust, complex management a lot easier. So that's the thing that I'm really excited about. Yeah, that's good. You know, if Rob Starr was there, the co-host was here, he's got a famous saying, you know, in God we trust all others, bring data. Uh, so yeah. I'm, sure if he, I'm sure if he was here, he would, uh, he would say that. So, so let me just key back on what, on, on then on the first segment there when Chris was on and she was talking about <coughs> the um, education system support for um, data management professionals or, or people who would like to get into that business. Um, and, and if you heard what she said, uh, you know, there's an active uh, effort in, in our industry to recruit people in that segment of the industry. Do you see that as well? Is CIT got, I'm oh, sorry, is Fresno State got curriculum like that? Uh, Fresno State has a little bit of curriculum like that. Um, but data science as a, a career is a bit challenging because data science usually focuses on the data and not so much what to do with it. You know, the, the what to do with it is often considered domain knowledge. And so somebody who wants to work in water doing data science needs to know the, the computer science part of it, but they need to know the water side of it too. Um, and oftentimes people who want to do data science usually have some particular domain in mind. Um, that's the challenging part of these transdisciplinary studies is that you basically have to get two degrees. So I think the, the data science programs that are available everywhere tend to be focused on one particular area of application unless they're being taught as pure computer science. And that, you know, there are a lot of people working on data science trying to hire data scientists, um, but there aren't that many of them, and I think that part of it, the problem is that it requires basically two areas of specialization, and that makes it challenging. It also makes it a pretty lucrative career opportunity. Yeah, I bet. Uh, again, as Chris was mentioning, right, these, these are good careers. These aren't, uh, you know, these aren't uh, uh, anything to be muddled with. Uh, I mean, you can make a good living on that and have a great career out of it. It's hard to bring the two together, I guess, and so hopefully... As the demand uh, becomes more evident and shows itself, then uh, schools, universities, trade programs will will see that demand and uh, and try to offer it. Let me ask you a question about um, the quote unquote smart products that are out there. Right, there's been sort of a you know a wave of those in the past uh, couple of decades. I guess we can go back back that far, um, and we've had lots of guests on Charles that have talked to us about the adoption rate of those smart products, right? And so, um, you know, maybe maybe we can get your view on that. Do you do you see it uh, from your point of view? Do you see the adoption rate of smart uh, technology increasing or kind of being stable, staying the same? And you can answer that from an ag standpoint or residential standpoint. Sure. Um, so most of my experience with that has been on the ag side, so I'll stick with the ag side. Right. Um, I, I'm always a little bit skeptical when I hear something described as smart. Um, right. Because there isn't a really clear, you know, unambiguous definition of what exactly that means. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, I assume that, that when something's labeled as a smart technology, it's smart because it's using data in some way to improve its performance over the, pro the same types of products that don't use that data. That's what the smartness means. In, in my mind, that's always a great thing. Uh, one of the most telling data 
points that I've seen came from the Farm and Ranch Irrigation Survey. They do a, a survey every, I think, five to seven years, and one of the questions they ask is, what methods do you use to irrigate? And you can break the answers up into two groups, which um, one being scientific irrigation scheduling, where you're making decisions based on data, and the other group being perception-based, where you're using the appearance of the crop or the feel of the soil, or one of the questions that answers is even when your neighbors begin to irrigate. Um, if you break the data down into those two groups, you'll see that the uh, perception-based methods are have a much higher adoption rate than the scientific irrigation scheduling um, methods. And it's, that disparity has persisted for a really long time. Interestingly, California has the highest adoption rate compared to the other states um, for most of those technologies. But there's still a pretty big disparity. Um, so adoption's on the rise, but it's really not where it should be. I think that some of the comments that we've gotten past shows as it relates to uh, to adoption and the, you know looking at it from a from those two categories scientific based and perception based. Um, a lot of people agree with you, uh, Charles, in that you know being skeptical when anything comes out with a label on it that says smart, right? Um, tend, people tend to look at that and say, oh, okay, well, uh, great, maybe this just pans off, right? I don't have to do anything. I just plug this in, plug a couple of things in, and then and then just let it alone and leave it all to the, if you will, the scientific base, and it kind of removes the perception base. Uh, equation at, out of it. I mean, how do you, you know, do, you, do you see it that way as well? I mean, there's a fear that uh, that people are going to think that smart means it's going to do it for them. Yeah, to, to me, that's um, the difference between automated and autonomous, right? It's yeah. a, a, a smart technology is often automated in that you don't have to put as much effort into making the thing do what it's supposed to do. But autonomous is when the thing just does it all itself, and you don't have to be involved. Uh, there are lots of automation tools out there, but there aren't too many autonomous systems for irrigation yet. Yeah, quite true. Nothing, nothing beats uh, you know walking out there with your using your eyeballs to <laughs> see what's going yeah, on. Yeah, you never, you're never really going to take people out of the loop, and nor should you. I mean, that no system can think all the thoughts and do all the things. It, there's got to be a person in there involved somehow. But the automated systems are making life easier, and maybe one day we'll get to a point where it's fully automated. But the unexpected things always happen, and you can't program a system to handle things that you don't know about. So true autonomy, I think, is still a long ways away. Um. I do. I, I, I agree with you, but, you know, kind of tagging on to what we were talking about in, uh, in, in the data-driven part of the industry, there's, there's got to be quite a few, uh, quite some turnover on the, even on the ag side, right? And, you know, we're, I, I know I've seen and had talked to guests where there's kind of like a new young uh, crop of farmers to pardon the fun, uh, <laughs> you know, or <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, pardon the fun. Coming into the industry, um, even on the ag side, do you see that as well? I mean, and are these younger groups kind of turning more to data? Yeah, definitely. Uh, much more, I wouldn't say it's willingness, but more affinity for technology. I, I, I've yet to meet a grower who wasn't willing to try something out 
um, to see if it works, and whether it's new technology or new methods. Um, but oftentimes the new technology requires effort and skills that you're not accustomed to applying, and that makes it more difficult to use. Um, and some growers do seem to have a greater affinity and an easier time getting new tech to work for them. So, yeah, I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, I'd agree as well. So, uh, listen, got a couple of hands up here. Um, people are asking, uh, they're, they're kind of, kind of, kind of putting together two or three questions here, but they're asking about the recent, uh, relief in the drought that we've had, right? I mean, you know, up until the, the 2023 rainy season that we just had and that, you know, the huge amount of rainfall and the, the giant, uh, you know, once in a two decades kind of snowpack we've got up there. What's your insights on that? If you have uh, any, Charles, and and um, how's it affected the ag industry as you see it in California? Well, I think it's uh, the current snowpack levels. I think it's a little bit too soon. Well, maybe not too soon, but we're kind of in the thick of it right now. Um, so it's hard to say what the impact will be. But the the thing that strikes me is this this climate pattern that we're seeing. I've heard people calling it climate whiplash um, or weather whiplash, where we're going back and forth between extreme drought and extreme wet. Um, and that's clearly a, a one of the effects of climate change. And it changes, or I think it should change, the way we think about planning for irrigation systems. Um, you know, we often plan around averages or we think around averages. And most of the time, that's a safe idea because the average is often the most likely outcome. But if we're moving into a climate pattern where we're going, you know, this ping pong back and forth between really wet and really dry, that means that the average is the one thing that's least likely to happen. And we've got to plan differently if that's the climate scenario that we're going to plan for. And so that's, that's the thing that has me most concerned about these climate trends. Yeah, I don't know if you're, uh, if, I don't think you're alone in, uh, 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 in that. We, we've discussed, as you described, the ping pong or the whiplash, <clears throat> um, you know, kind of a north, south, hot, cold, night and day scenario that, that we've all been put through, uh, recently. Uh, one of, one of the other questions on the message board here is, is, uh, is what kind of effect do you think it's had on the conservation effort that we're starting to really take hold, right, during the, during the drought times? And, uh, you know, a lot of folks are saying, hey, this is not the time to, you know, let go of that. Just think, oh, we got plentiful water now. Uh, we don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. Conservation is still very important. Do you agree? I couldn't agree more. And I remember hearing statements exactly like that a few years ago, right after the last big drought. Um, I'm sure people were saying those things right after the drought before that. It's one of those human things that it's, tough to get past. You think when it starts raining again and we've got a great snowpack, it drops over and we don't have to worry about it anymore. And that could not be further from the truth. There is going to be another drought. Um, we are going to have a lot more dry years. That's the way the climate's moving, and we have to be ready for it. So conservation is and will always be extremely important. I think you're right. Absolutely right. So, uh, Last question here. we got a couple of minutes left before our friends at e, uh, NBC go to their uh, news hour. So quick question, right? This is this is the sort of a, 
you know, you forward looking, future looking thing. So just from the standpoint of your of your uh, uh, view, uh, your experience, how do you see the future of water in California? Not set aside the California water politics, but just as you see it, though. Uh, I think we are going to have to get a lot more uh, strategic and data-driven in our management and use of water. Uh, I think the days where you can just turn the water on and not worry about it too much, those days are gone, and they're not going to come back. Um, water is a precious resource, and we are going to have to manage it very, very carefully. Um, and that includes everybody who's using water, not just the administrators and government, um, not just the scientists at the universities, but everybody on the ground from the homeowner or the grower. We're all going to have to be using information and data to manage our water. Um, what I'm hopeful for is that we'll have the tools that make that management easy. Um, because not everybody wants to spend an hour or say going through spreadsheets and copy paste and things around statistics. You know, we've got things to do in our lives. Um, So the the data management tools are going to make that kind of uh, management process even for everybody. Yep, agree. Charles, uh, it's been great having you on the show, buddy. We're we're getting close to the end here, but I appreciate your insight, uh, your willingness to talk to us. I'd love to talk some more, so uh, I think Rob and I might ask you to come back because I'd like to get into, you know, some of the stuff that's going on with ordinances and EPA water sense and all that stuff as it applies to uh, ag. So we got a reason to talk again. Uh, I look again, forward to it. I appreciate you coming on uh, very much on onto the show, and for our listeners, guys, thanks for tuning in again. Please come in next week as well. We've got uh, we've got a great guest next week talking about some new technology coming that's uh, coming down the pike. I'm sure you want to hear that. So uh, for everybody uh, out there and all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. Uh, keep help keep our planet blue because without blue, you can't have green. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks again, Charles. Have a great week. See you next week. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. NBC News Radio. I'm Brian Shook. Additional charges against.